Hello, this is Rev. Brad. Many of you know that I'm the volunteer chaplain for the Colorado Rapids of Major League Soccer. In the past week, two former players of the club have died, and at very young ages. We don't often associate death and sport, especially an elite sport. Usually the athletes are in the prime of their lives. They're healthy and fit. So a debilitating stroke or illness, a death, these things come as a shock and surprise. So today, I want to share a story and some tools for coping with grief. Now, you may or may not identify as a Christian, and you may or may not even consider yourself to be religious, but I believe that this story can be helpful if you've experienced a loss, and especially if you have a loss that's been sudden and unexpected. This podcast is going to be a bit longer than usual, so you might want to digest it in smaller chunks or even come back to it a couple times. What we're going to do is listen to the story, And then I'll come and offer some insights into the story and ways that we typically grieve and deal with loss. I pray that you'll find some of these insights helpful for the loss you're faced with. If you'd like to read the story for yourself, it's found in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 36. If the Bible you're reading has headings, it may read, On the Road to Emmaus, above verse 13. Here's my best mate, Fraser Kay, a Scottish pastor, reading for us Luke 24, 13-36. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, 
and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Thanks, Fraser. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take it verse by verse, and I'm going to point out some different things about grieving and loss, ways that we can cope, and when I get to a real practical point, I'm going to give you two things usually. I'm going to say, hey, if you're in a group setting, ask yourself or ask this question, and then I'll give the question. I'll also give an individual reflection. So if you're listening to this, you're by yourself, you're alone, you can have a different way of processing and thinking through what we've just read or what you've just heard. Okay, so here we begin. And the first thing that we see is we see this sense of conversation. In the story, there's these two people talking about everything that had happened. You know, when a tragedy strikes or a death happens, there's a lot of conversation and talking that goes in and around the event. Now, talking may or may not be helpful. A lot of it depends on your personality, but it's a first response. You know, we're often powerless to change the events that have occurred, and talking may help us begin to unravel in our own minds and spirits what has just happened. What did we just learn? What are we just feeling? Talking also allows us to share our emotional or mental or spiritual burdens with others. And if they can listen well and carry it, then they end up carrying us in a way too. Sometimes though, talking or reliving the event through others talking, uh, think like a news channel that repeatedly shows the same images over and over and keeps talking about an event without any really new information or news. Well, that can have an unhealthy psychological burden for us to carry. All of a sudden, we can become weighed down or more depressed as we carry not only our own grief, but the grief of others. So in really practical terms, it's important to be aware of how much we're talking, how much talking is happening around or after a loss or tragedy, and whether it's really helpful for us, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Talking too much might be harmful for us. Moving on, the next thing we see in verse 16 is we see disorientation. If we read just a few verses just before the passage, we notice, like in verse 11, the women's words were like nonsense. And in verse 12, Peter went away wondering what had happened. And in verse 16, as we encounter these two people on the road, it says that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. When we experience grief and loss, we can experience a a loss of vision or focus where we can't see clearly. We find ourselves in the midst of confusion. We don't know what to believe. And, And even sometimes if our closest friends or family, in this case, in the story, Jesus, if those people were to come up into our very midst, we may not even recognize them. I've seen this many times in my work as a hospice chaplain. I'll walk into a room or I'll see family members walk into a room 
And people literally don't recognize their own family members because they're dealing with so much grief and loss. Now, scholars debate whether the disciples were divinely kept from seeing Jesus and what all this might mean. But I think if you've experienced grief and loss, like the loss of a loved one, it wouldn't be hard for you to imagine just being utterly confused and disoriented in the way that we see the disciples here as they walk along the road. I remember I was working overnight radio shift, and I remember I had a seizure one night at work. I was all alone. It was shortly after midnight. And all I remember is waking up to a beeping alarm sound. And that alarm sound was designed to remind us radio operators that we were supposed to play a certain uh, tape segment. And because of the seizure, my glasses had knocked off my face and I I couldn't find uh, my way. And I was so confused. I was like, where am I? What's going on? It's that kind of disorientation that we feel around grief. So here's two practical things to do. If you're in a group, here's the question. Describe your disorientation around the news of your friend's death. If you're alone, an individual, here's a reflection for you. What might be some ways that Jesus has come alongside of you in a time of grief and you haven't noticed him? Or in other words, what are some ways that a helpful person has come alongside you in a time of grief and you were confused, you didn't see them or notice them? Moving on to verse 17, we see desolation. Their faces are downcast as Jesus comes up to them. They were sad. All their hopes and dreams, you know, maybe they had put money into the cause of Jesus. Maybe they had supported his ministry. Maybe they had given up their jobs or left their families to follow him. Maybe there had been something that was very personal for them, a part of a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, all their hopes and dreams had come crashing down. Seemingly, all was lost. And even the friends that they had made along the way, they were scattered. One had committed suicide. Most of them were scared and in hiding, and they had just left this place. So we can see and sense the desolation that is happening in their hearts as they walk along. So here's an individual reflection for you. How did you or do you feel about this person, about this loss, about their death, about your relationship? What are some of the triggers going on for you? What are some of the hopes and dreams? What are some of the things that you regret? Moments where you said something you didn't want to, or you left things in a way and you wish you could go back and change it. What desolation have you faced? We next see in verse 17 as well, we see on Jesus' side, investigation. Jesus wants to know, and I think this is key for us to remember. Jesus wants to know what's going on in our lives. God wants to know. He wants to know our fear, our sadness, our pain. A lot of times people come up to me and they're like, hey, Rev, you know, my hurt and pain isn't anything compared to fill in the blank, compared to poverty or compared to starving kids in Africa or, and and we usually minimize our own pain and suffering and hurt. But you know what? God is not limited in the ways that we're limited. He's not like us. He knows our pain. He knows our hurt, and he enters in. Whether you're a parent that's lost a child, or whether you're uh, someone that's lost a friend or a family member, he wants to know what you're feeling, what you're struggling with. 
and he's big enough. He's big enough to tackle uh, all the different things that, that we feel and face. So by way of investigation, here's what's helpful for us too. You know, as we share stories and memories and moments of the person whom we've lost, when we're together with others who knew the person and spent time with them, it's important to hear their stories too. And it's a powerful way of remembering someone. I don't say just remembering like the casual word we throw out. It's remembering, like putting them back together. Somehow in our hearts and minds, as we share stories, it it helps us develop a clearer picture of a person. And notice that Jesus asks the first question, and then he goes to a second level of question of really inquiring. You know, sometimes it's really easy for us to tell people, oh yeah, I'm fine. And, And we can interact with people on a surface level but it's those deeper questions. We need to be mindful of being ready to go deeper with people who are grieving if we come alongside them in the road. And we also need to be ready for when people that we trust come alongside us to not just give a surface, shallowy answer. And here's where I encourage people especially to be honest with God. Are you angry over the loss, over the circumstances? Is there a deep, suffocating sadness that seems to cover you? Tell God. I mean, don't hold back. Don't just be real with him. And in that way, whether you have tears or whether you have curse words, like I think he sees those things as a prayer and he understands our hearts. So if you're in a group, here's a question for you. What would you say to Jesus if he walked into the room where you're at right now? What would you say about this death, this loss, these circumstances? If you're by yourself, an individual reflection, how would you describe or encapsulate your friend's life? What would be some of the things that you would say about them? What are some of the ways you describe them? What are some of the memories and stories? I encourage you to think through those, reflect through those, try and capture those in some way. So moving on, verses 19 through 24, we see this explanation that happens. We, we understand that this one of the guy's names is Cleopas, and he has this other companion that's on the road with him. If you want to dive into church history, Christian history a little bit, you can look up Cleopas and this other unidentified person on the road. Scholars have some different thoughts on who this might have been. But within this text, we get an accurate picture of what these two people thought and believed about Jesus and the amazing events around his trial, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. But here's the point that I want to show you. In verses 19 and 21, in the midst of their explanation, we see their hesitation. The words read, he was a prophet, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Here we learn everything that they thought about Jesus and everything they hoped about Jesus. And perhaps the very thing that they believed that Jesus was a Messiah, that he was going to redeem and save Israel, now that was on shaky ground. Now there was a wavering in their faith. And Jesus, in this passage, in this part, he confronts him in this. You know, these disciples are in a dangerous place. If they continue down this path, the pain and grief that they bear, the disorientation they feel, the hesitation, it will surely lead to a hardness of heart, to an eventual rejection. And this is what happened. When we go through the storms and shipwreck moments of life, we often come away not only with disorientation, but a hesitation. 
we have a profound sense of doubt and we question everything. We question things about ourselves, our beliefs, our relationships, our experience. For Cleopas and his companion, there's this profound questioning, this doubt, this confusion. Who was this Jesus guy? Who was this, you know, maybe for them, it's one of their closest friends or family members. And we go through these similar things where all of a sudden we look around, we're in this disoriented state, and even the best of friends, we see them maybe even as enemies. We're confused. And this is a dangerous place to be left. It's a dangerous place for grief and fear and doubt to creep in. So if you're in a group, here's a good question to ask. What are the unfulfilled hopes or dreams around your friend's death, around your family member's death? What did you hope for them? What did you dream about? What did you want to do? What, what things won't happen now? What things could have happened? Share those things together. Talk about them. Throw them out there. Put them on the table. Put them out loud. Put them outside of yourself if you're in a trustworthy group. If you're alone, here's an individual reflection. What other personal things has this loss brought up for you? You know, maybe for you, as you consider and reflect on this death or this loss or tragedy, there's some other things stirring up inside of you. What are those things? Let's take a look now at verses 25 through 26, and we see what Jesus is doing here. There's a sense of admonition. You know, sometimes we need a swift kick. Sometimes we need an objective viewpoint. Sometimes we need someone in our lives who is anchored while we're being tossed around in a storm. We need someone that can speak truth into the messiness of our lives, someone that can hold us up or carry us because we haven't got the strength ourselves to hold on anymore. And that's what we see Jesus do here. He kind of rebukes him. He kind of gets in their face and says, you guys are you guys are idiots. You're, hey, don't you realize? And then he goes on. He doesn't just leave them with that. He goes on to really care for them. So here's an individual reflection. Who is someone who is spiritually or emotionally strong at this point? As you go through grief, as you reflect on your grief or loss, who's someone who can hold you, challenge you? You know, it might be a spouse, a trusted friend, might be a counselor, a therapist, a chaplain, a pastor. Who is that person who's grounded enough to give you an objective uh, sense and help stabilize you where you're at? Moving on, we see in verse 27, we see interpretation. Jesus interprets the scripture for our understanding and benefit. You know, today, this really is the role of the Holy Spirit, to show us things within God's Word, to be able to discern God's truth and put aside doubt and disbelief. It might be that we read the Bible on our own. It might be that we're in a group setting or in church. And there are good teachers that help explain Scripture. But it's the Holy Spirit that kind of burns inside our heart and kind of illuminates that truth in those moments. And I think it's truly amazing when we can see God's Word speak into our lives. You know, as I've been going through a lot of grief and loss in my ministry life and my life as a hospice chaplain, as a volunteer chaplain for the Rapids and for other soccer entities, and I've seen, I've seen tragedy after tragedy in many ways, this passage has become really powerful for me as I work through the grief and loss that I face. And I hope it is for you as well. And I think it can be really amazing to see God's Word, the Bible, speak into our lives in these kinds of moments. 
And of course, as a Christian minister, I've got a tremendous bias, but nowhere else have I found such a trustworthy and helpful source of comfort during times of grief and loss. And that when I read the Bible and I understand it with those, that lens, that framework, it can really be powerful. So if you're in a group, here's a question for you. What verse or passage of scripture has been meaningful or comforting or helpful for you? If the Bible hasn't been something that you've read either, like maybe there's been a book or another story that's maybe been helpful for you. Share that with the group. If you're alone, a point of individual reflection could be, what is God showing to you? What is he saying to you through this moment? In what ways is he coming alongside of you and guiding you, helping sustain your faith or help you have support? What are some of those ways? Verse 29, we see an invitation. On this point, our two friends invite Jesus in. Again, they don't recognize him. He's a stranger, but they invite him in. And the thing that I think is wonderful about in this uh, part of the passage is that hospitality is not lost. And so I want to encourage you that in the midst of whatever grief you have, don't lose your openness. Don't lose your receptivity to receiving others in. I know it's hard. I know right now it's, it's painful and, and probably you just want to be alone. You want to be to yourself. You want to be with your own thoughts. You don't want other people in and around. But if we invite others in, trustworthy, safe, peaceful people in, that person might just help us get through our grief. That person might just represent God to us. That person might be there for us in a way we never thought possible. And so it might be too that um, someone invites you into a sacred time, an intimate space where you get to share part of their lives, part of their grief. And I would say, walk carefully and consider that. You know, Again, here's where I get into, don't talk too much, listen, especially if you're a chaplain or a pastor and you're speaking into the, a situation. If you're a friend in a group, like Make sure there's balance. Make sure you're not overwhelming everything, that, that everyone kind of gets a chance to speak and process. So here's a point of individual reflection. Who do you need to invite in? Who else is hurting? Who can you extend hospitality to? Maybe it's someone in your, in your friend or family member's family that's experienced a death or loss as well. Maybe it's a, a child that is in and around the situation, others in the community. Maybe it's other people in a group or, or a peer group that you're connected to. Who do you need to invite in? Who can you invite in? And in what ways have you been invited in to someone's story, to someone's pain, to someone's grief and loss? The next point, verse 30, we see communion or yeah, I'm trying to keep up a alliteration here, communication. And it's the sharing of that which is intimate. You know, there's several places in the Bible where we see a pattern of taking a meal, eating, being around each other, sharing stories. And uh, it's, it's this place where communication happens. You know, all the time when I have folks over to the house, uh, whether they're from the club or whether they're uh, other guests of ours, there's always conversation around the table. And in the sharing of stories, oftentimes there's healing that happens. There's laughter, there's levity, there's lightness. Um, 
sometimes there's heaviness too, and, and we end up caring and sharing for each other. So I, I just want to encourage you to consider what are those places where maybe around a table, maybe around a meal, maybe around uh, a time together, whether it's over a coffee or, or something else, like there's that moment where you share there's a prayer that I sometimes pray with my family, and it has some hand motions. I want to try and teach it to you right now, which might be a little difficult, but um, there's this way in which when we gather together, we take our hands, and I might take my left hand and hold it kind of like a cup or hold it underhanded, and I place my right hand over it, and I just simply say, Lord, our daily bread, bless it. And then I take my two hands, put them together in fists, and I say, break it. And then with those around the table, I reach my open hands out and I say, share it with you. And then I go into maybe a spontaneous prayer. So maybe for you, there could be a way that if you're in a moment around a table with others, that you could do or use something like this, something similar of a way of Blessing, breaking, and sharing together. And there's this distinct pattern that we see Jesus doing in many different places in the Bible where whether it's some of the miracles where he's fed 5,000 or 4,000 people or it's the Last Supper, he takes bread, he asks the Father to bless it, he breaks it, and he shares it with those around the table. So let me try this for you, okay? Heavenly Father, our daily bread bless it. Lord, we break it and we share it with each other. In this moment, with our grief, with our sadness, with our pain, with our joy, with our celebration, we share this time with one another. Be with us. Amen. You know, maybe if there's a group time and those within the group are Christian, this could be even a point to share in communion. Or maybe at some point in the grief process, you share together in a moment of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, communion. That can be a powerful moment of working through grief and pain. An old friend of mine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this about the condition of grief. He says, Nothing can make up for the absence of someone whom we love, and it would be wrong to try and find a substitute. It is nonsense to say God fills the gap. He does not fill it. But on the contrary, he keeps it empty. And so he helps us to keep alive our former communion with each other, even at the cost of pain. You know, when Jesus gets in with his disciples and he says, do this in remembrance of me, and he breaks the bread, he, he says, every time you get together, remember me. Put, put this time back together. Recall the the fun moments that we've shared, recall the stories, the, the difficult things that we went through. And that's what Bonhoeffer's kind of getting at here. He's saying, there's no way to replace someone we've lost. There's no way. I hear cliches like time heals all things or things get better in time. But, but to be honest, if you've lost a loved one, there's no way they can ever be replaced. And God wouldn't do that to us. But what he does is he gives us tools and he helps us to remember to put back together 
the thing, the person that's been broken or lost to us in powerful and meaningful ways. Well, moving on, let's move on. Verse 31, what we see is the revelation. These two people that have invited Jesus in, their eyes are opened, and Jesus is recognized by the sharing of this meal. The symbolism of the covenant that he established now kind of comes to serve as the next point of transformation. And so I think sometimes it's not until we're in that setting where we've shared a meal with someone, and even we might even walk away, we might be driving away in the car and we go, wow, you know, it was good to be together with those people. It was, man, I had forgotten that so-and-so did this. And I, I had forgotten, oh, wasn't that funny when when Billy shared this story about, about Tommy and all those different things. Sometimes our eyes can be open and the revelation can happen when we're together and we've communed with people and we've, we've opened up ourselves again to letting God speak into our grief and loss and pain. So think about that for a moment. Think about what's been the eye-opening time or what could be an eye-opening time for you as you consider your grief and your loss. Verse 33, we see the transformation. And the transformation, it's curious to me, I, I say, what would cause these two people to make a seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem at the end of the day? You know, if the average person can walk about three miles an hour, this would have been at least a two-and-a-half-hour two and journey just by walking. I imagine they ran or jogged or whatever they did in sandals back then. But there's a moment of transformation because they had just come off this journey. They had just settled in. They had just gotten home. But in the transformation, oh, man, it didn't matter. They turned around and they headed back to their friends, back to those so that they could go and kind of be with them and affirm them. I think this is a powerful moment too. If you're in a group, maybe you've gotten together. Maybe you've come around someone's grief or loss, their death. That's a powerful moment of transformation that can happen in that time. If you're alone, an individual point of reflection, how do you need to experience transformation? What would transformation look like? like through considering or reflecting on your loved one's death. We come to it at the end here, verse 36. We come to the consolation. You know, in our desolation, in our confusion, in our disorientation, we tend to withdraw and isolate. And this is where Jesus himself comes. He speaks peace into the desolation. And it's in the presence of the community of his, his best friends that he makes himself known. So here's the thing that I would ask you, and depending on where you're at in your journey of grief, maybe you've not experienced consolation. Maybe you don't have a sense of peace. But let me ask you, if you look back and reflect on moments in which you became more settled or you felt at peace, when was that? Who was it with? Who were you around? Maybe there's someone in your life that you've forgotten that during a moment of trial or difficulty, they helped speak peace, or you just being around them, you felt like you could take that deep breath. Maybe this is a moment for you to reach back to that person. Maybe it's a chaplain or pastor or counselor. I hope it is. You know, friends, I don't know where you're on the road of grief. 
maybe you're in that disoriented, bewildered, blind state. You're unable to see what's familiar, what's, what's usually comfortable. You're unable to see Jesus. You're, you're unable to see the presence of God right now. And maybe you're even looking in earnest at the Bible. Maybe you're trying to understand God. Maybe you're at church. Maybe there's a dear friend in your life who's, who's trying to help explain and show you or, or encourage you along this time of, of grief and loss and sorrow. You might even be in the midst of a, a group like sharing stories and breaking bread and having a, a glass of wine and sharing with each other. My prayer is that in the midst of your grief, wherever you are in that journey, that you would see Jesus, that your eyes would be opened, that that your life would be transformed, that you would realize that there is a peace coming. There is a consolation coming into your hearts and lives. And maybe for you, a simple practice might be to go through this text of Luke 24, 13 through 36 several times. Identify where you are on the road of grief. Go back maybe and listen to some of these points where maybe there's a reflection thought or, or a point where I've tried to direct your thought thinking a little bit. Ask yourself tough questions. Be with people and experience healing and peace. This is Rev coming to you from the Touchline.